When I woke up, Carla was gone. So were the crutches. So was any chance of me balling my right hand into a fist for the foreseeable future. I was sure at least three of my fingers were broken, and I'd probably fractured some bones in there somewhere. It hurt like hell, looked like hell, and was going to make life more uncomfortable for a couple of weeks. I took four ibuprofen, washed it down with two fingers of scotch, took a shower, then got dressed and headed for the office. As I passed, the meanwhile, I noticed Carla's Honda was still parked in the alley where the attack occurred. The bar wasn't open yet, so wherever she'd gone, she must have taken a cab from my place to get there. I didn't expect her to be at the office, nor did I expect her to act like nothing had happened. She was on the phone when I walked in. She wore a pale pink shirt, a white sleeveless summer blouse, and I noticed she'd wrapped her knee in an ace bandage. Yep. Okay. Got it. The crutches were propped up against the desk. She hung up. You've got an eviction notice and a set of divorce papers that need to be delivered today. She slid a set of papers into a manila envelope, wrote an address on the outside, then handed it to me. Carla? Morley and Stafford have the notice of eviction at their office. Carla? I tried again. Eviction's in Rivertown. That's going to suck. The divorce is in Brush Park. So you can swing by and do that one first. She said, continuing to ignore me. Carla! This time I gave it some gas. She stared at me defiantly. You better get your ass moving because you've only got until three to get the eviction paper served. What? What? They offered a $300 bonus. We're supposed to be making money here, aren't we? Carla said as she filed copies of the orders, then started sorting the mail. Evictions could take ten minutes or they could take all day. I once had to stand around for six hours while the tenants I'd been asked to serve lobbed eggs at their landlord's Toyota Camry as he sat locked inside, watching a team of men move all their belongings out onto the curb. All I needed was a signature, but they refused to sign until the last possible minute. Without looking at me, she asked, What happened to your hand? Walked into a door, I said, then got back to the eviction issue. What if they're not home? Carla shrugged. It's Saturday and the owner is out of work. That's good odds. Carla. Oh, and Lash left a message for you to call him. You look summerish. I figured I'd try something different. Thanks. She didn't bat an eye. How'd you get home this morning? Cab. I went home and got changed, and the cab brought me back here. I need you to take me to pick up my car later when you get back. You're not coming along. Carla usually accompanied me on these rides. I sensed she enjoyed watching me squirm more than anything else, because it was the part of the job I hated most. Death has the Grim Reaper. Divorce, bankruptcy, and eviction get his bastard cousin, the harbinger of doom known as the process server. In these cases, I am the bastard in question, and I take no comfort in it. I've got work to catch up on. Billing hasn't been done yet. Leave the billing for later. I'd rather you not be here alone, until we find out who attacked you last night. I'll lock the door, Morneau. I'll be fine. 
I bent over and planted my hands on the desk in front of her. Or I could fire you so you can go home and wait for whoever it was to ambush you there. It'd be less mess for me, insurance-wise. I'm not sure if I'm covered in the event of rape or dismemberment. It was a ruthless thing to say given the events of the previous night, but it did the job. She slammed the pile of mail onto the desk, stood up, slung her purse over her shoulder. You know, you could probably be less of a raging prior prison if you tried a little harder. I probably could, I said, locking the door behind us. But then I wouldn't be privy to your clever retaliatory bone moats. <laughs> now would I? The ride was icy, and that was fine by me. Later, I'd call Lash and find out what he knew. But until then, I needed to keep Carla busy. After swinging by the attorney's office to get the eviction papers, we headed to Brush Park. In its heyday, it was a neighborhood for Detroit's elite. Now, it was house upon house of historical squalor. A few were being renovated, but most continued to lapse into decay. The solidly built brick home we parked in front of squatted just blocks from an entire row of once grand homes that had become the ruins of Detroit's gilded age. Even still, it suffered by comparison. There was a for sale sign in a yard that looked as if it hadn't seen a lawnmower in a few months. A rusted out Chevy sat on blocks in the driveway. Another vehicle was parked behind it. So that gave me hope that someone was home. I left Carla in the car and ambled up the overgrown brick path to the door. When I knocked, a dog barked inside the house, its snarling getting louder as it approached the door and began scratching it. After a few minutes, a man somewhere in his thirties opened the door a crack. He was bushy-haired, had a lazy eye, was shirtless, and had one of those concave chests that looked like it housed a bowling ball at one time. He scratched his arm while using his leg to keep the yippy ball of fur making all the noise from getting out. Yeah. Are you Melvin Green? He's not here, the man replied, trying to shut the door. I slid my foot over the threshold. Court papers are like migraines and stalkers, Mr. Green. You can't wish them away. I'm a persistent fellow. I'll keep coming back until the lawyer in your wife's case decides to issue a wage garnishment. That's a whole pile of hurt you don't want to dive into. Once they start taking money from your check, it's hard to get them to stop. And that's on top of whatever this initial claim for monetary compensation is. Plus, I'll be forced to bill for my time chasing you down, and the judge can order you to pay that too. He signed the receipt and I was on my way. But as we pulled up into the curving driveway of what had to be a couple million dollar mansion in Rivertown, I suspected the next one wouldn't go easily. Come up there with me, I said to Carla. Maybe they'll take pity on the pretty woman with the crutches. Carla sighed and clambered out of the car, tugging the waistband of her skirt up before slinging her arms over the crutches and swing tap, swing tapping her way to the door. I followed behind her, noticing the crutches were adjusted a little high for her height. She was coming off the ground more than necessary. 
She knocked on the door and I motioned for her to hand me one of the crutches. I adjusted it clumsily, having to use my left hand to do what I'd normally do with my right, and was starting on the other as the door opened. A slick-looking guy with a mass of curly black hair wearing khaki shorts and a tight white shirt answered with a drink in his hand. He smiled warmly. Too warmly, I thought. Hello, he said, looking from me to Carla. I handed her back the second crutch and was about to jump into my spiel when she said, Hi there. Are you Mr. Tegan? Well, yes I am. What can I do for you? I held out the papers. We're here to serve you these. Just need a signature. Tegan smiled and opened the door wider. Well, come on in. Who is it, honey? A female voice asked from inside. I'm guessing it's those papers the lawyer called about. Tegan motioned to a sunken living room area to the left of the large inner foyer. Marble floors, recessed lighting in the vaulted ceiling, and what looked like pricey paintings on the walls. Tasteful, immaculately clean, and expensively furnished. Go on in and have a seat, Tegan said, the ice in his glass clinking as he extended his arm. I knew he was a real estate broker who'd used the home as collateral in a business deal that had gone bad. I always marveled how, at the higher the level of income, the farther out on the proverbial branch they tended to crawl. A fall from that height was generally pretty messy. I followed Carla into the vast living room area, floor-to-ceiling windows surrounded by gauzy drapes, and a huge sectional couch facing an entertainment center that looked like it belonged in NASA's control center. The woman was painting her toenails. She had her feet propped up on a low glass table that sat in the center of the semi-circular ivory-colored sectional. A cascade of blonde hair flowed down her back against a bright turquoise tank top and nicely browned shoulders. She looked up and smiled, then went back to her task with seemingly little interest in us. Carla eased herself down and set her crutches against the couch. I sat next to her, putting the paperwork on the table in front of me. Tegan returned from what I assumed was the kitchen with a refilled glass in one hand and a gun in the other. I immediately stood up. He used the gun to motion me back down, the fictional smile still percolating on his face. He sat across from me. Relax, Tegan said, then tucked two fingers into his shirt pocket and pulled out a small square envelope. He squeezed the edges and the fold at the top popped open. He proceeded to turn it over and pour what amounted to about a teaspoonful of white powder onto the glass table. Carla tensed, then turned to look at me and said, So glad I came along. Tegan chuckled, pulling out his wallet with his free hand. He looked up at me with an implied warning in his eyes as he set the gun in his lap and pulled a credit card from his wallet. He must have felt me weighing my options across from him because he didn't bother putting the wallet back in his pocket. He set it on the table and picked the gun back up. Oh, where are my manners? Tegan said as he used the credit card to slide a couple tidy lines of coke away from the powdery mound. Mitz, get our guests something to drink. I'm fine, thanks. 
Tegan looked up at her, his smile gone. Have a drink. The woman named Mitz twisted the top of the nail polish on, plunked it on the table and bounced up, waddling across the room on her heels, with her toes splayed out to keep from smudging them on the carpet. She approached a large wet bar next to a fireplace surrounded by river rock, then looked over her shoulder at us. What can I get you? Scotch, I said, not taking my eyes off the man with the gun. Tegan looked at Carla. She was silently defiant for longer than I thought was necessary, given our precarious situation. Finally, she said, Club soda would be lovely. Then she casually flipped her gaze in Mitz's direction. With a slice or two of lime. If it's no trouble, Mitz. I might have laughed if Tegan hadn't shifted the gun from me to her. Carla seemed unfazed. She leaned back into the plush couch and slid her hands under her bandaged knee, lifting her leg to rest on the table. You don't mind, do you? Busted my knee chasing a knife-toting idiot down an alley last night. Tegan nodded, his smile sliding closer to a smirk this time. Then he bent over and sniffed heartily, one line per nostril, throwing his head back and shaking like a wet dog before pinching his nose between two fingers and rubbing vigorously. He motioned to my hand and asked, Same knife-toting idiot? I nodded. Mm Mm-hmm, but you should see her. Tegan was the only one who found that amusing. Mitz slowly waddled back over with our drinks. Here you go. She handed them to us, then pulled a couple of cork coasters from under her arm and placed them on the table in front of us. She stared down at Carla and tilted her head. You know, you were awfully cute. Could be hot even. Mitz appraised her tapping a lacquered fingernail on her lips. A blunt cut bob at the shoulders, maybe, and a little smoky eye shadow. She popped down next to Carla on the couch, nudging her with her shoulder. I bet you look great in green with all that red hair. You just gotta work a little harder, that's all. I couldn't help but chuckle. This caused Carla to slowly turn to look at me, her eyes becoming thin, warning slits. I may not be well-made, like the women in your books, Morneau. What I lack in aesthetics, I make up for in enthusiasm. You're made just fine, Carla, I told her, trying to figure out a way to get the gun away from the cokehead without anyone getting shot in the process. Tegan pointed the gun at me and asked, You're a writer, huh? He leaned back casually, crossing his legs. I used to be. Until he gave it up for the drink. Tegan plastered the smile back on. He held his glass up in a toast. To the drink. He leaned over the table toward me. To the drink, I said, touching my glass to his. I used the slight forward momentum to spring toward him, but decided to do so about a second too late. I landed half on him and half on the table. Gangly-legged scrabble to get all the way on top of him sent the drinks flying. The table groaned before it cracked down the center, but remained in one piece, still attached to its base. Oh my god! 
Miss Scream. I could feel the gun in his hand directly under my knee, so I pressed harder and said, Let it go. I might lose a kneecap, but you're going to lose your nuts if that thing goes off. When I pressed my thumbs into the soft spot directly above his hyoid bone, I felt him release the gun. A pain shot up my right arm, and I could now identify exactly which bones were broken in my hand. Grab the gun, Carla, I ordered. Tegan started bucking, so I pressed harder with my thumbs. His eyes rolled back, and he made choking sounds. I groaned with the effort, and sweat broke out on my brow. Don't hurt him, Mitz cried. Oh, shut up, Mitz. Carla hopped on her good leg toward us, leaning against the table for support, and trying to reach between us. Lift your ass up, Morno. I can't reach it. The table cracked under her weight, and Carla slid onto my back. God damn it. She pushed herself up with one arm and her good leg. I lifted my knee and Carla reached around and grabbed the gun with two fingers, trying to slide it out. Her general trepidation about touching it was wasting more time than I had the patience for. We're not taking it into evidence, Carla. We're removing it from the general vicinity of the coked-up evictee. Wrap your goddamned hand around it and pull. And try not to touch the trigger. She closed her eyes and wrapped her hand around the barrel, pulling it out from under it. I don't like guns, Morno. She hopped backward with the gun and stared at me. Bring me the paper and the pen, I said, gruffly. Still holding the gun by the barrel, she reached over and grabbed the paper from the floor and handed it to me, teetering on one leg as she looked around for the pen. Mitz, grab a pen from inside my purse. Now. I released Tegan's throat and rolled him onto his stomach, straddling him as he gasped for air. Mitz rummaged around in the purse until she found the pen, then handed it to Carla, who handed it to me. Both women watched as I shoved the pen in Tegan's hand and held the papers beneath his face. He bucked up and down, trying to get out from under me. I pressed a knee hard into the middle of his back. Hey, Tony Montana, settle down. Sign these damn papers or I'm going to have my lovely assistant call the cops. I'm pretty sure the coke on the coffee table won't be doing you any favors. Tegan bucked again and I ripped the eviction paper trying to hold on to both it and him. I grabbed a handful of his hair with my left hand and ground his face into the carpet. You are starting to annoy me. You wouldn't have a concussion, but the rug burns wouldn't be pretty. I understand you're angry about losing this place. I can't blame you for that. But I can blame you for pulling out a gun and waving it around in mixed company. So sign the damn paper and we'll be on our way. Give me any more shit and your new home will be the Wayne County Jail. With no other alternative, Tegan scrawled his name on the eviction paper. And I handed it back to Carla, mangled as it was. She held the gun clutched by the barrel straight out from her body, like it had something that was catching. I got up, stepped over Tegan, took the gun from Carla, and said, I'm thinking there's some firearm training in your future, woman. When we got back to the office, I called Lash. 
What have you got? I asked, marveling at the interesting hues on my hand as I flexed and unflexed it. The blue was rebuttal, invalidating the truth of my self-inflicted act. Purple is always a color of the soul, and here it was, sorrow rising to the surface. Even with all the many shades of gray, colors never lie. We got the search warrant for the Wayne Grove place. Took some computer stuff and the knives to compare. I got prints for both of them. We all had coffee together while the officers gathered the evidence. Right before we left, they bagged Stanley and Sally's cups. Neither of them seemed particularly happy about that, so I wasn't sure what to make of it. How long until you get the print results back? Day or so, probably. Stanley's been in with INS all morning. We found the illegal workers, some of them anyway. Seems a bunch of Hispanics pulled into McDonald's in Toledo yesterday. One of the guys was using a payphone while the rest loitered in the parking lot. The manager called the cops. When the sheriffs arrived, some of them ran. Local authorities took custody of 39. Looks like about 40 men got away. Damn mess from what I hear. People running every which way. The ones they caught are on their way to a detention facility in Houston. One they talked to said Wayne Grove gave them an address in Toledo where they were to hole up until he arrived with her pay. It was a bogus address, and he never showed. Obviously never planned to. Sent those boys down there to get them as far away as possible. Didn't count on them getting caught. Is Stanley in custody? He's here, but I don't know what they're going to do with him. Probably have him pissing his pants. They don't play around. Poor guy's getting it from all sides. Poor guy my ass. Does Carla want to come down and make a statement about last night? I looked at Carla and repeated aloud. Does Carla want to come down and make a statement about last night? She shook her head and continued to open the mail, not looking up. No, sir. Looks like she doesn't. Morno, I gotta tell you. I don't think Stanley had anything to do with that attack on Carla. Sally came down this morning with Stanley and had that brother of hers, Riley, with her. I took him aside and asked him some questions. He was asleep last night when they were there, but he said Stanley got home around eight, just like Sally said. Then they hung out in the barn for a few hours. Said Stanley was drinking and rigging up some fishing lures. They hung out and bullshitted for a while. Stanley started playing the guitar. Riley said he was in a bad mood, but he didn't leave the property all night. He left Stanley out there sometime around midnight. I was there by 12.30. You believe him? Asked if I could hook him up to a polygraph, and he said yes. Was ready to do it right then, but I was just bluffing. Couldn't schedule one for a few days anyway, but I wanted to see if he'd bite. Sounded like he was telling the truth. I didn't like where that left us. Wonder why Stanley didn't mention Riley last night if he's that good an alibi. Probably because you knocked him around, so he figured, why help you out? I knew better. Knives were usually personal. What I saw felt personal. Maybe. I avoided looking at Carla. Oh, I almost forgot. Deckard's dead. Hospital said he had a series of mini-strokes. Then his heart stopped. Well, that's one way of getting out of being questioned. 
I told Lash to let me know when he found out about the prints, then hung up. Carla looked up from the pile of mail. Lash doesn't think Stanley had anything to do with the attack on you. When she swallowed hard, I instantly knew she was considering the same possibility that I was. Since the attack, I'd been pushing it as far back into my subconscious as I could, preferring to believe that an idiot redneck bent on revenge for a public ball-busting was responsible. The other option was considerably more grim than I was prepared to contemplate. You mentioned something about firearm training. Anywhere around here we can do that? Are you planning on getting a gun? I asked. I'm thinking about it. She was quiet for a few seconds longer than made me comfortable. Then asked, Morno, how did you connect the name Lucy Rios from the business card to me? I called the daycare. I immediately knew that wasn't what she wanted to hear. Who did you speak to? Bethany something. When Carla nodded somberly, I knew she was about to outline how my nosing around might have cost her any hard-won security she'd managed to establish in the six months she'd been here. Her hands shook as she unwrapped the bandage from her leg and gave her knee a couple of bends. She stood up and tentatively walked around, testing the effect of putting her full weight on the leg. Other than favoring it a little, she seemed to be walking okay. She turned around to face me. Right before I left Florida, I found some old emails in the sent file. I learned that Lorenzo and Bethany were having an affair. It had been going on for a while, apparently. She walked back behind the desk and sat down. If he's keeping in contact with anyone, it would be her. So there's a very real possibility that because of your call, the man who killed my son and ex-husband knows exactly where I am. The anger I'd felt the night before slowly emerged like a menacing gator rises to the water's surface to stalk its prey before pouncing. Unfortunately, my immediate instinct was to direct it at her. Looks like coming here wasn't a good idea, was it? Tracking down the defunct author. Figuring you could make him your pet project. Spend some time working on his battered self-esteem. Maybe sober him up. All to distract you from the fact that the lunatic who beat your kid and ex-husband to death is still out there somewhere. Like the reptilian creature clamping its jaws around its victim just before the final death roll, I snapped. In the goddamned immortal words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you, Carla? I slammed my good hand into the file cabinet behind her. She didn't back down, met my anger with equal measure, her eyes boring into mine. How's that working for me? Well, let's see. I've been attacked by someone with a knife, faced a gun-wielding cokehead, saw a man who didn't deserve what he got laying on a slab at the fucking morgue, had my employer break into my home, rifle through my belongings and stir up a bunch of shit that might get me killed, and you know what, Morno? What's fucking worse than all that bullshit put together? Watching you walk into this office every day, your eyes empty and cold, drinking a fucking hole in your gut because you don't give a shit about life anymore. You can't just check out and keep walking around among the living. Quit being such a fucking coward. Either put a goddamn gun in your mouth and pull the trigger or fucking engage. Hitting her started to feel like a viable option, so I backed up. Who the hell do you think you are? 
She jumped up out of her chair, limped around the desk, and pointed her finger in my face. I'm another human being on this goddamn planet. That's who I am. And you're taking up precious oxygen ions that could be nourishing someone else who actually wants to live. So if you aren't interested in living anymore, do everyone a fucking favor and stop breathing. Blind fury is not a cliche. I had her by the shoulders before I knew what was happening. Her eyes held the same relentless challenge I met every time I looked into them. As soon as I kissed her, I knew there was no going back. But I also knew there was no way forward. Emotional reactions are often the most honest, but they are also intractable and overshadow any hint of logic. I could taste the anger on her, the fear inside her, the sadness welling up in her, and all of it was meant for me, none of it for herself. I had no idea you could taste something like that on another person, feel it coming out of their pores. It was the difference between being inside her and knowing what was inside of her. As innate as animal instinct, it was the same instinct that caused me to flee. Even mugs wouldn't come near me. I sat at the meanwhile in the far back corner of the bar, in the recessed area that held two booths across from a payphone. I could stare into the bar and see the comings and goings while remaining completely disengaged. Muggs had brought me my first drink, but when his initial question was met with a gruff, unintelligible warning, he'd gone back behind the bar, grabbed a bottle, brought it back to my table, and left it there. I stared at the inch of amber liquid left in the bottle, then at my hand wrapped around the glass. Only now that my senses were dulled to the point of indifference, could I stand on the periphery of myself and look vaguely through the fog separating me from what she'd done? I felt like she'd slipped my chest from neck to abdomen, pulled my flesh apart, shoved her hands inside, yanked out handfuls of raw meat, and examined me against my will. I knew she'd continue to go at it with a vengeance that would not be satisfied until she cored me out completely set all the mangled parts of my visera aside, studied them, and then decided which parts should go back in and which were too toxic to stay. Only a scar would remain to remind me where she'd been. I'd have to look at it every day and wonder why I'd let her in at all. I remember hearing Muggs call after me as I stumbled out of the bar, his strong hand gripping my upper arm wrenching myself away and faltering into the night. Block after block of blurred images. I stumbled at some unrecognizable corner, fell into the cement, and dove headfirst into the blackness, until I was dragged back to the surface by a dog licking my face. Clamoring back to my feet, more of the street, more blocks, more darkness, splintered occasionally by a shaft of street light that I'd weighed heavily through, then to black. Sounds jerking me back into reality. A car horn, a scream. Then my apartment building with the crumbling facade. Whining hinges at the front door. Heavy footsteps on the stairs. An impossible heaviness in my limbs. A burning in my hand as I fumbled for the keys in my pocket. Sliding to the floor my back against the cool cement, 
head swimming with the quick, jarring descent. Then a figure looming over me. Heaviness in my chest. A thick need at my core and cool hands brushing against my skin. Rushed, unnerving, tugging at my center. A sour tang of taste, then a weight bearing down on me before I slid back into the black nothing. Want some company? Jesus Christ, Warno. Mm. A familiar voice grinding a finger into an open wound. Dragging my eyes open, I struggled to find its source. Someone on the landing between the second and third floor. I felt hair against my face and looked down. Trudy had her arms around my neck and her head lolled against my shoulder, eyes closed. My pants sloughed around my knees like the skin of a snake in the process of shedding. 